Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Bob Thune of Quorumdeo Church, and I am flying solo for this third Wednesday theology episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Our recording schedule got a little bit thrown off because of people's vacations and a few other events that we had going in the month of August. And so in order to get us caught up and back on schedule and back in the normal flow of things, that means I have to do an episode by myself, just me and the crickets here in the studio talking about Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God. If you've been tracking along with us um, for some time, you know that every third Wednesday, on the third Wednesday of the month, we tackle a chapter of Herman Bovink's Systematic Theology. And I wanted to start this episode by explaining why I enjoy and appreciate the work of Herman Bovink. I was just looking through the, the theology books that are on my shelf, and I saw one from back when Mark Driscoll was still a respected voice in American evangelicalism, or at least a, a received voice. Um, back in the mid-2000s, Mark Driscoll and Dr. Gary Brashears from Western Seminary put out a book called Doctrine, What Christians Should Believe. And that is an approach to theology that many books of theology and doctrine take. In other words, this is what we should believe. And of course, there's an important truth in that. There are normative truths that Christians should and must hold to. There's a, there's a core of faith. There's the Apostles' Creed sort of doctrines that this is what it means to be a Christian, is to believe and hold these things. But there's a reason why I prefer the method of Herman Bovink. And the reason is this, because Herman Bovink, and he's not alone in this, but he's one of the best proponents of this, does not just tell us what Christians should believe but he also interacts with what makes it difficult or challenging in our cultural moment to believe those things. In almost every chapter, Herman Bovink does um, a faithful job of just saying, hey, here's why this belief is going to feel challenging or comes up against some of the modern ways of thinking about this topic. And so Bovink is a, a very modern theologian in the sense that he's not just a good historic Christian theologian who tells us here's what the church believes, but he helps us interact with why sometimes those beliefs feel challenging or difficult or out of sync in the world we live in. And like Tim Keller does a good job of, uh, Bovink usually interacts with defeater beliefs, things that would make it feel like this particular doctrine is untrue or ways that make it um, hard to hold this doctrine in the modern world. And Bovink, um, for that reason, is one of my favorite theologians. Now, I'd like to begin this episode by reading to you from Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That little part of Philippians 2 is widely understood by commentators to be an early Christ hymn. It's probably one of the early songs about Christ that the uh, first Christians sang. And the scheme that you see there is a scheme that theologians refer to as humiliation, exaltation. Right, The writer tells us that Christ 
uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and that as a result of that, now God has highly exalted him. And so we see this descent, this humiliation of Christ down into uh, first the incarnation and into death, and then the exaltation of Christ to glory. And this scheme is throughout the New Testament. And one of the things that um, good systematic theologians do is they just attend to these sort of themes or schemes in these patterns in the biblical narrative of what the Bible shows us about Christ's person and work. So the next two chapters in Herman Bovink's Wonderful Works of God are titled The Work of Christ in His Humiliation and The Work of Christ in His Exaltation. And Bovink is using this scheme. He's saying, as we understand the work of Jesus, why is Jesus Christ worthy of our worship and praise and adoration and love and trust? There are two primary reasons for that. One is because of his humiliation, how he condescended to be our Savior. And then the other is because of his exaltation, who he is as a result of his resurrection and his exalting to the right hand of God. And so he's following a very classic scheme here theologically, and he's going to focus this week on the work of Christ in his humiliation. So this, um, I just want you as a listener to understand this humiliation, exaltation scheme is a very important foundation for understanding biblical Christology. This is also important because it actually shows us the pattern of the Christian life, right? If you think about how the New Testament exhorts us. For example, here's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you'll notice Peter's follow. He's saying basically the pattern of Christ's humiliation and exaltation is a pattern for us as Christians. We too are to humble ourselves, undergo suffering, embrace hardship and persecution in this life, knowing that it is temporary and that what awaits us as we uh, share in the sufferings of Christ, what awaits us is exaltation, glory, new heavens and new earth. And so the New Testament writers basically use this, this pattern of Christ's life to help us understand the pattern of what we should expect for our lives. We should not expect only exaltation. We should not expect only glory. We should not expect everything to be good right now. We should expect that first there will come humiliation and suffering and hardship and difficulty and persecution and the, the, the challenges of life. And that what sustains us in the midst of those things is knowing that there will come exaltation with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. And so this scheme is not only helpful in understanding Christology, but it's helpful to us in understanding the pattern of our lives and the shape of what the church's life is in the world. So let me survey for you briefly and quickly how Herman Bovink proceeds in this chapter. And again, every time we do this podcast, I realize some of you are reading along, some of you are not. So for those of you who are not reading along uh, through this book, at least I want to give you some categories of thought that should help you in worshiping Christ and thinking about Christ. Bovink patterns this chapter on the work of Christ in his humiliation around the doctrine of the three offices of Christ, which is particularly the work of John Calvin, or actually many theologians have done this, but it's Calvin who draws our attention and sort of um, makes this a, a key pattern for understanding the work of Christ. And Bovink specifically names Calvin, says it's especially due to Calvin that this scheme of treating Christ's work has found general entrance into the doctrine of salvation. 
um, the three offices of Christ are the office of prophet, priest, and king. And what Calvin and then Bavink following Calvin observe is that in the Old Testament, you had these three offices among the people of God. You had the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. And in Christ, he fulfills these three offices in one person. He is our great prophet, our great priest, and our great king. And understanding how he fulfills these offices is key to understanding who Christ is and what he's come to do. Bavink lays out for us three reasons why thinking through the scheme of those offices is helpful for us in understanding um, Christ. And so let me summarize the three reasons why he wants to urge us to think this way about prophet, priest, and king. He says, in the first place, such a treatment stresses the truth that the whole life of Christ on earth is the exercise and carrying out of an office given him by the Father. In connection with Jesus, we cannot speak of a business, a trade, or even of a moral calling which he himself has chosen. According to the Holy Scripture, he was assigned to an office. That is the difference between an office and a profession or trade. One cannot choose it, but only receive it by appointment from a power which stands above us. So he wants to emphasize that Christ is stepping into an office. He's, he's stepping into a role that's ordained and given to him by an authority above him, which is uh, the Father. In the second place, he says, the three offices with which Christ was commissioned are a reference to the original calling and purpose of man. Adam was created in the image of God in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in order that as prophet, he should proclaim the words of God. As king, he should rule righteously over all things. And as priest, dedicate himself and all his own to God as a well-pleasing sacrifice. And that is why Christ came to earth to exhibit again the true image of man and to bring his destiny to perfect fulfillment. The doctrine of the three offices lays a firm connection between nature and grace, creation and redemption, Adam and Christ. The first Adam is a type herald and prophecy of the last Adam, and the last is the counterpart and fulfillment of the first. So if you catch what Bavink is drawing out there, he's saying, actually, the three offices of Christ help us understand the origin and, and destiny of human beings, because Christ is stepping into the office that God intended for Adam to hold, and that Adam failed in holding. And so we see here Christ as sort of the, the truest and fullest human being. And again, we see the, the future glory that is ours as humans, as we caught up in and counted into the work of Christ as the second Adam are restored to our original dignity and purpose. In the third place, Bavink writes, the doctrine of the three offices ties directly in with the revelation of the Old Testament. When mankind fallen in Adam became more and more corrupt, God chose a particular people as his own. In connection with that calling, Israel also received again as a people, a prophetic, priestly, and kingly task. So he, he sees Israel as a people, being given these tasks, these offices. God intended them to be a kingdom of priests and to be um, defined by and united around his word and his law in a way that made them a light to the nations. And then finally, Bavink says, it's only if we deal with the work of Christ in terms of the three offices that it comes into its own. There have always been one-sided tendencies in the Christian church which saw in him only the prophet or which occupied itself solely with his priestly passion or which would hear of him only as king. But we need a Christ who is all three at once. We need a prophet who proclaims God to us, a priest who reconciles us with God, and a king who in the name of God rules and protects us. The whole image of God must be restored in 
man. We need a Savior who redeems us perfectly and entirely and who fully realizes in us our original purpose. Christ does this because he himself is prophet, priest, and king. He in turn makes us prophets, priests, and kings unto God his Father. So that's why the three offices of Christ are a helpful tool and a helpful rubric for understanding the work of Christ. Now, um, as Bavink goes on in this chapter, he works out this sort of prophetic, priestly, and kingly offices um, and talks about how Jesus occupied and lived out these offices during his ministry on earth. And remember, he wants us to understand that these three offices are part of Christ's humiliation. Christ condescending and coming into human time and space and history to take on the work of being a prophet, being a priest, and being a king. And so, again, since this is uh, Christ's uh, calling for us, he makes us into prophet, priest, and king, it helps us to reflect a little bit on what these offices involve. Um, as Bavink traces Christ's work in these three offices, he mentions that um, uh, the prophetic office is the first one that's emphasized as we begin reading the Gospels, right? We, we, Jesus comes on the scene as a rabbi, a teacher, one who proclaims the word of God. And Bavink writes on page 323, the preaching of Christ was therefore in the profoundest sense self-revelation. It was a proclaiming of his own person and work. In his preaching, Christ unfolds the origin and nature of God's kingdom, the way that leads to it, the benefits it comprehends, its gradual development, and its final fulfillment. And so what Bavink wants us to see, first of all, is that when the, when the gospel writers introduce to us to Jesus, they introduce us to Jesus as one who speaks the words of God, as one who is doing the work of a prophet. And if you understand how John the Baptist is referred to in the gospels, it's sort of like he's the, the last of kind of the Old Testament prophets. And then it's clear that when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. And Jesus now in his teaching and his proclamation of the kingdom of God fulfills the office of prophet. Bavink goes on to say his words are accompanied and confirmed by his works. These two belong to his office and to the fulfillment of the father's will. The miracles of Jesus are all miracles of redemption and healing and as such belong to the exercise of his priestly office. If you think about when you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you think, why is Jesus healing people? Why is he doing these miracles? Sometimes Western people think, well, this is Jesus sort of like flexing. You know, he's showing that he's supernatural. He's God. He's powerful. He can do amazing stuff. Well, that's part of perhaps what he's doing. But more importantly, what Jesus is doing in his miracles is fulfilling the priestly office. Um, he's showing that he has come to bring healing, to bring redemption, to set people free. Uh, Bavink writes on page 326, in the various miracles which he performs, in the driving out of demons, in the healing of the blind and deaf, the crippled and the maimed, in resurrecting the dead and in commanding the force of nature, he gives conclusive evidence of the fact that he can perfectly redeem us from all our misery. There is no guilt so great nor any sin, and there is no misery so deep, but he can remove it by his priestly compassion and his kingly power. Bavink wants you to understand that when you read of Jesus doing miracles, you should not see these as like the flexing of supernatural muscle. 
rather what you should see them as is a pointer to redemption. What Jesus is doing is restoring what's broken, healing what's infirmed, uh, restoring God's original intent and design for human flourishing. And so in the miracles of Jesus, we see the redemptive power of Jesus and specifically his priestly office. He alone can perfectly redeem us from all our misery. And then in the kingly office of Christ, uh, we see, of course, the fact that he is uh, comes in David's line and is therefore the Messiah, the awaited king of Israel, but also that he proclaims the kingdom of God. And so there's this dual aspect of his, his kingly office. There's the sense that he comes to sort of inherit the promises God made to David, but, but more importantly, to, to declare that God's kingdom has, in fact, come, that it is here now. Um, Bavink writes on page 328, Jesus constantly exhibited his royal power, but he exhibited it not in a show of dominion as the rulers of the nations did, but in serving and giving his soul as a ransom for many. His being a king came to expression in the force with which he spoke, with which he proclaimed his laws for the kingdom of heaven, subjected the forces of nature to himself, commanded sickness and death to desist. On the cross laid aside his life in order to take it up again. And one time, as king and judge, will judge the living and the dead. Um, in order to demonstrate that he really is a king, he stages his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the Sunday which opens the week of the Passion. Um, he points out that the triumphal entry, Jesus is doing this intentionally, stepping into the office and the expectation of king. And that uh, also he's doing that only at a time when he realizes that it's going to lead to the cross. As you know, if you've read the Gospels, there are many moments when people wanted to proclaim Jesus king and wanted him to take the throne of Israel. But he understood that his kingship had a different focus than what they expected. And so he only allowed himself to be acknowledged as king um, the week of his crucifixion, when he understood that there was enough uh, animosity toward him on the part of the Jewish and Roman authorities, that there was, there was no way that this was going to be conceived as him entering into um, an earthly kingdom and rule, but that rather um, he would fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah of riding in on a colt and also the prophecy of Isaiah of being the suffering servant. Now, of course, Bavink puts a lot of focus in this chapter on the death of Christ because, remember, we're talking about the work of Christ and his humiliation. And by the way, I want to read you um, from earlier in the chapter how Bavink sort of wants us to understand this um, condescension, this humiliation of Christ. Christ's humiliation began with the conception itself and continued through his life up to his death in the grave. Christ was not a human hero whose motto is excelsior, who overcomes every obstacle and finally achieves the pinnacle of his fame. On the contrary, he descended always lower and deeper and more intimately into our fellowship. The way down into these depths was marked by tears or steps, conception, birth, the lowly life in Nazareth, baptism and temptation, opposition, disparagement, and persecution, agony in Gethsemane, condemnation before Caiaphas and Pilate, crucifixion, death, and burial. The way led ever farther down from his home with the Father, and it led ever nearer to us in the fellowship of our sin and our death. 
until finally in the deepest depth of his suffering, he gave utterance to the anxious complaint about being forsaken of God. I love how Bavink, and again, this is very classic for Protestant theology, describes these as like steps on the way down. We have incarnation, but then Nazareth, baptism, temptation, opposition, disparagement, persecution, Gethsemane, condemnation, crucifixion, death, burial. The, the, the sense is that Christ is just continuing on this journey of humiliation, coming lower and lower into identification with us and further and further away from his own glory with the Father. And it's a beautiful thing to think about each stage of Christ's earthly ministry as being a further descent. And so obviously in this journey of condescension and humiliation, um, the sort of low point of that is the death of Christ. And Bavink spends the last part of this chapter reminding us that the death of Christ was a sacrifice. And he wants us to rightly understand what this means. And if you want to strengthen your doctrine of the cross, your doctrine of atonement, the last six or seven pages of this chapter and Bavink helping you think about what it means that Christ was a sacrifice are very rich and helpful. Uh, he is doing here the same work that the writer of Hebrews does. When the writer of Hebrews explains to us that all the Old Testament sacrifices were not actually intended to do anything about sin, they were all types and foreshadows and pointing to the need for sacrifice and a sacrifice that could actually remove sin. But what Bavink does that I think is a little unique is he acknowledges that sacrifices are not unique to Old Testament religion, that many of the ancient Near Eastern religions practiced sacrifice, right? All of the ancient uh, religious systems that we know from archaeology and from history involved sacrifice. Here's Bavink's definition of what a sacrifice is in general. Generally, it can be said that their purpose, the purpose of a sacrifice, is by offering a material gift consisting of living or inanimate goods which are destroyed in a dignified way according to a definite ceremony to make sure of the favor and fellowship of deity or of newly acquiring them. So he says, generally, if you think about what a sacrifice is in a religion, it's the destruction of a living or inanimate good in a dignified way according to a definite ceremony in order to gain the favor of the deity. Uh, Bavin goes on to say, the Lord included sacrifices in his law, but in Israel they were given a different role and took on a different meaning. In the first place, the sacrifices in Israel were limited to the offering of animals and products of the land and could only be brought to the God of Israel. The offering of human beings, the drinking of blood, and the mutilation of the body was forbidden. And by the way, that is a dramatic point it sets apart the, the religion of the Jews from every other ancient Near Eastern religion. Every other pagan religion uh, involved either uh, the offering of human beings, the drinking of blood, the mutilation of the body. That's very common in ancient Near Eastern religion, but it's forbidden uh, in the Old Testament. Moreover, all offerings to idols, to the dead, and to holy animals were violations of the will of God. In the second place, the sacrifices of Israel were of far less importance than the moral laws. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And in the third place, the sacrifices of Israel stood in service of the promise. They did not effect the covenant of grace. They served only to keep the covenant in force in Israel and to establish it. 
Those three little nuances that he just gives right there are crucial to properly understanding what's happening in the Old Testament. By this whole ceremonial service, Bavink writes, God instructed his people that the covenant of grace with all of its goods and benefits was due to mercy alone. Further, he caused them to understand that he could grant the benefit of forgiveness of sins only along the way of atonement. Sin is always as such to arouse the wrath of God and to make man guilty and polluted. In general, therefore, a sacrifice is necessary to subdue the wrath of God, to deliver man from his guilt and impurity, and to cause him to share again in the favor and fellowship of God. And so he, he sort of does a really thorough job explaining what Old Testament sacrifice was and was not. And then he points us again to the work of Christ in his humiliation and says, hey, what Christ is doing is simply the work of substitutionary suffering. Christ's death is sacrificial. The Bible says that over and over and over again. There's no way to be a serious and honest reader of the Bible and not to understand that Christ is uh, a sacrifice for sin. The New Testament says this. Um, and Bavink wants us to understand that the, the simple phrase we can use to understand the death of Christ is the phrase substitutionary suffering. Um, in fact, he says this, the term substitutionary suffering expresses in only a weak and defective way what it means. The whole reality far transcends our imagination and our thought. This is the mystery of salvation, the mystery of divine love. We do not understand the substitutionary suffering of Christ because we, being haters of God and of each other, cannot come anywhere near calculating what love enables one to do and what eternal, infinite, divine love can achieve. But we do not have to understand this mystery either. We need only believe it gratefully, rest in it, and glory and rejoice in it. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. He's quoting there, obviously, Isaiah 53. So this chapter on the work of Christ in his humiliation closes with a reminder that Christ is a sacrifice for sin. He's substituting himself in our place to set us free from the guilt and penalty of sin. And that that is central to the New Testament's teaching. Uh, of course, liberal theology in the last hundred years has tried to retain the idea of sort of the Sermon on the Mount, that we can practice the ethic of Jesus and we can follow the way of Jesus and we can walk in the path of Jesus without all the blood and the atonement and the sacrifice and the dying. That, that That's all sort of like uh, old, you know, um, superstitious religion that we can do away with. But Bavink rightly and uh, more modern authors such as Fleming, Fleming Rutledge have also emphasized this, that we just can't read the Bible and hold that point of view. The Bible is clear. The New Testament is absolutely clear that the, the early Christians saw the death of Christ as a sacrifice, as some kind of atonement, as delivering us from the penalty and power of sin and the wrath of God, and that there's no way to be a honest and intelligent reader of the Bible and leave that to one side. So yes, the Sermon on the Mount gives us a beautiful ethic. Yes, Jesus' life is a wonderful model of what human life should be. But most importantly, what Jesus is, is a substitutionary sacrifice. He came to be our prophet, priest, and king, and to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, after which God highly exalted him. And in the next uh, chapter, next month, we will get to the work of Christ in his exaltation, 
And so we'll get to think about the glory of Christ. What does it mean that Christ is seated at the right hand of God? What does the resurrection tell us about who Jesus Christ is? But foundational to Christian belief and to the heart of the gospel is the humiliation of Christ, his descent into our human condition and experience and his continued descent to suffering, to death, to burial, only ultimately then to be resurrected and exalted to the right hand of God. And so we'll get to that next month. But for this month, I hope that this uh, topic and this podcast and this chapter in Boving helps you reflect more deeply on the beauty of Christ's humiliation. We worship a Savior who did not seek glory, who did not seek to advance himself, who did not um, seek his own um, exaltation, but rather we love and worship Christ because he willingly left behind all the glories of heaven and condescended to take our place, went as low as it was possible to go to die for us. And when we rightly reflect on his humiliation, it should move us to glory, to worship, to adoration, to confession of sin, and to sing loudly and rejoice greatly in the work of Christ on our behalf. So thanks for tracking along as we reviewed this chapter of Herman Boving's The Wonderful Works of God. As always, it's great to be with you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.